from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I hope that the book helps people for sure. But one of the things that I'm railing against with the sort of culture of self-help is I'm tired of black women and girls blaming themselves for everything that is wrong with the world. So there's this thing where, you know, if black women haven't found the love they want, they just keep on saying, well, what's wrong with me? What is the thing that I need to fix? And and so often the politics of self-help are rooted in this idea that we have personal deficits that we need to fix or amend. And I want to reject that and say that I think that black women are enough. Um, I think that who we are is absolutely fine. And that doesn't mean that we don't all have personal work that we need to do, but it does mean that we don't have to keep blaming ourselves for all of the ways that the world is broken. And so this book tries to pursue an analysis that helps us think politically and structurally about why black women are in the positions that we are in, so that what we're not doing is staying up every night or going to church asking, you know, asking God to fix us or trying to fix ourselves. Um, I don't think that that's what the problem with black women is. I think the problem is white supremacy. Um, I think the problem is a culture of male domination. Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University, and author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers a Superpower, published by St. Martin's Press. In her book, Eloquent Rage, Cooper talks about being placed in an academic advanced classroom at the age of seven, where she and another black girl were the only persons of color, and how that shaped the person she is today. Also, she talks about running for student body president at Howard University in her junior year, and what she learned from that experience. Growing up in eastern Louisiana, Cooper witnessed her saying that black life wasn't equal, nor was it fair. According to Cooper, her book keeps us all honest and accountable and reminds women that they don't have to settle for less. I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr. and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Eloquent Rage with Dr. Brittany Cooper, Part 2, In Black America. One of the core arguments of Eloquent Rage is that intersectionality has intimate consequences. And so I talk about how when Sandra Bland is making her journey down to Texas, the day she gets pulled over, um, is this terrible day for me where I'm on a train giving a talk at Harvard, giving the first talk at Harvard I'd ever been invited to give, but I'm like in the middle of having a terrible breakup with like this man that I had been dating who had just done me wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. And sisters will know what I mean when I say just done me wrong (laughs) in all kinds of ways. And So I'm like, you know, we're having a terrible sort of fight on the train, all via text, because, you know, this is the digital era. And Sandra Bland is sort of on her journey from Chicago to Texas. And I just, you know, I was struck when I realized that those dates coincided, that I have a very clear sense of what I was doing on that day and a very clear sense of her loss and what it means, and that I understand what it is to get in your car and drive thousands of miles to your destiny. And what I don't understand is what it looks like to get that close and then to not make it because you become the victim of an act of state violence. Dr. Brittany Cooper, an assistant professor at Rutgers University and author of Eloquent Rage, isn't one to fool with. She has strong convictions regarding being a black female and a feminist. In her latest book, Cooper describes the long process that brought her to feminism and her commitment to telling the truth about black girls' lives. She doesn't back away from areas of black life too long considered taboo. 
Also, she explores the politics of America's deeply problematic relationship with gender, race, and violence. Born in Ruston, Louisiana, she earned an undergraduate degree in English and political science from Howard University, her master's and Ph.D. degree from Emory University. Cooper, who has come to peace with her rage and shows that what black women get collectively angry about the things all Americans should be angry about. On today's program, we conclude our conversation. I talk about that election as being one of the moments in my genesis towards a feminist turn uh, because it was the first time that I felt like people judged me because of my gender and because of my femininity in ways that I wasn't used to. When you wrote the book, there are many chapters that we can talk, and we can just pick a chapter and just talk for hours, but I found it interesting in the chapter with with strong female leads. Why was that important for you to include in the book? One of the things I'm trying to work through, uh, particularly writing this book in the aftermath of 2016, is what happens in the election of 2016 Mm -hmm. uh, with Hillary Clinton. So I try to get at that by thinking about my own relationships with young white women uh, as a little girl and the ways that I love, that I believe in the girl power story. And so if you ask me the kind of things that I like culturally, I'm always watching television shows uh, that Netflix says have strong female leads in them. But I, you know, don't particularly have lots of personally close relationships with white women. So it's weird to like lots of shows where white women are at the helm of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I use that as a context to sort of think about what happens with Hillary Clinton and the fact that I thought Hillary Clinton should have won the presidency. I voted for her in the primaries. And it was interesting to have that stance when many of the folks in my more radical feminist communities were like, but her politics aren't right. And she and Bill Clinton are deeply racist. And, you know, and so we shouldn't trust them. And I thought, sure, like, show me an American white politician who has not been racist in some significant ways um, and will not be talking about American politics if that is the case, but also trying to hold that I learned this complexity in childhood that you could be, I had to have a childhood where I was friends with people who were often had racially problematic politics and Mm -hmm. I still had to learn to relate to them on a human level. And I think that that set of skills shaped the way that I engaged with Hillary Clinton, that I didn't think that she was right on race any more than I think the vast majority of white people in America are right on race because very often they don't have the tools nor are they challenged to get right and to do right around racial politics. But but for me, that has never been the only marker about whether about the kinds of choices we make in terms of who leads, because for black folks, we've never had that luxury. And so it bothered me greatly that Hillary Clinton was held to a standard that we didn't we have not yet held any other American politician to. And so I thought it was really important to say that, that you can both be deeply clear about the kind of racial challenges that many white people face if they have not been forced to reckon with their privilege, and also say at the same time that you know, candidates like Hillary Clinton deserved a shot at the presidency, presidency that she was qualified, um, and that I think that it's good feminist politics to say that, and that I don't think it undercuts uh, the feminism that I believe in to say that I think that that particular woman should be running this country in this moment. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUG Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Study and Africana Studies at Rutgers University and author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. Dr. Cooper, I found it interesting, and I didn't even notice it, when Michelle Obama showed up at the Trump inauguration in a ponytail. How did you, how did you d- detect what was going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, look, this is my read of what's happening. I just remember that the first time I saw her and I was, you know, I began texting my friends. I was like, do y'all see Michelle's hair? Because Michelle Obama is a fashion icon and her hair is absolutely, you know, amazing, always done, you know, fried, dyed, and laid to the side, as we say in the South, like always, you know, all this body and bounce and, and, and is gorgeous. And she just kind of had the kind of elegant pinup, the kind of elegant quick updo and not the kind of pomp and circumstance that I would imagine as her last formal act as first lady. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that hair, I was like, you know, I know black girl's hair if I know anything, and I know that that ain't the kind of hair you do in this formal moment. Uh, and so I read it as her, you know, calling BS and saying, this is a hot mess, what is about to happen. I need y'all to know that I see what it is, and I'm not here for it. And so she just looked done. She just looked completely over it. And so I argue that that, too, is an act of eloquent rage, that it is an act of dissent from handing over the American homeland to a fascist who is going to terrorize all of us. Um, and I, you know, and I think when you see a woman like Michelle Obama, who is always tight, come to the last inauguration and her hair is thrown up in a kind of messy bun ponytail, and she's pulled, she looks perfectly nice, but she's just pulled a dress out the closet, looks like, and shown up there. You know, like that's when that's the way the subtle ways that black women communicate that they are absolutely done with the situation. And that's what it read like to me. Speaking of hair, you had a hair experience at the at a pool party when you were younger. <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know, I talk and look, I think so many black girls have had this experience <laughs> where, you know, I had all this hair as a kid and I had a perm. And that meant that you couldn't just get in the pool, you know, because that chlorine over a relaxer will do terrible damage to a black girl's hair. And so I'm in the pool with all my little white friends trying to keep my hair from getting wet because I also don't want to get fussed at when I get home. And there's all these white mamas around the pool and they're whispering, you know, it's just hair and I don't know. And why is her mama so strict? And my mama's not there to defend herself because she wouldn't be around the pool at 3.30 in the afternoon because she's at work. And so she gets there, you know, and has to just, you know, she doesn't upbraid me, but she just says, okay, babe, you know, we'll wash wash your hair. And so then it becomes a two- or three-hour ordeal on a Friday night to wash my hair to make sure that no chlorine kind of damages it. And I just talk about that experience as one of the differences between the lives of black girls and the lives of little white girls, even when, you know, we're friends, that this is the way that culture and power um, and levels of access show up in moments that are deeply formative and the ways that little black girls have to sort of navigate not being understood in these white spaces where white people take their experience as being the norm. How did you handle the, the, the drama, the domestic violence that was going on in your household, particularly with your dad, because you were almost not here? Yeah. Um, I tell uh, the very harrowing uh, and devastating story of the circumstances of my birth, where my mom, a former partner of my mom's, the man she was dating before she met my dad, it was deeply jealous and angered with her for moving on. And so when she was just a few weeks pregnant with me, that man tried to, uh, he shot both she and my father and tried to kill them. And they both survived the attack. And, you know, weeks later, my mom found out she was pregnant with me. I had also survived that attack. But so that was a, a separate man. And then, you know, and then I grew up in a context where my father also struggled with uh, alcohol, uh, struggled with alcoholism and was himself uh, deeply violent uh, to my mother. And one of the goals that I 
you know, I'm trying to work through in that chapter is how to both, how black women can reckon with the violence that we've, many of us, many, many of us have experienced at the hands of black men without throwing black men away, uh, without casting black men as monsters. And sometimes we don't tell that story because we're so afraid that black men will be pathologized in a world that already says, you know, terrible things about who black men are. But this is black women's opportunity to tell our story and hold our truth. Um, and so in trying to zoom out to the structural places that I feel like the men in my community and in my life got their messages about what it means to be a man, I try to also hold the complexity of my father's story, that he wasn't a particularly great father to me, and he was a terrible partner to my mother. But when I was nine, my father got killed, and he got killed protecting his then-girlfriend and her children from another man with a gun. Um, and so to me, it becomes a powerful story about like when when black men say, well, you know, well, brothers get abused too, or patriarchy, you know, you know, abuses us too. I say, yeah, you're, you know, who are you telling, right? Like, I know what it is to both have been victimized by violent men and also to have lost men that I loved and cared about at the hands of other violent men. Um, and for me, that means that we have a charge to challenge toxic masculinity in our communities um, and to give black men a different set of scripts around how to engage their emotional lives um, and how to engage their desire for power that don't involve them killing other men and or killing women and children. How did you work through the the pain, understanding that your dad had empathy for someone else. He also had empathy for, you know, the, the Nigerian girls, but not you and your mom. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's a pain that I will ever fully get over. What I hope is that in telling the story, folks can see that even the men that we think are monsters are often deeply complex people. Um, and I and I do think that our justice project as black people means that we've got to figure out how to hold the complexity of our truths. And so I try to do that in honoring my dad, even as I have many issues with my dad. I also think that part of what I hope is that we can create the space to have real conversations. One of the things I've been thinking about recently and said in another conversation the other day is I do think, based upon who my dad was, that had he lived and had the benefit of some life and some help mm -hmm. uh, with his alcohol addiction, um, I do think if he could read the story that I told and read how deeply his actions affected my life, I see enough humanity in his story to believe that he actually would apologize, that he actually would hold, that he actually could hold the his destruction and that he would take responsibility for it. Um, that is the thing that I hope uh, would be true for his story and for me, for me, that's a healing idea. I found it fascinating when you wrote about uh, the young man that knew your dad and come to find out that he was a very smart individual, didn't have to study for tests, and <laughs> that DNA is in you. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, that was such a crazy encounter to be a, a kid and, you know, there's a way to southern people. I was like, well, who are your people? Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm sort of telling this teacher who my people are. And he says, I knew your dad, you know, and then he tells me this story about picking my dad up on the side of the road one day. Uh, and he was like, you know, he was a really smart cat, you know, and I didn't think the cats like him would care about starving children in Africa and all of this kind of stuff. And so that became one of my keys to the journey of trying to figure out who my dad really was beyond who I, who I got to see him to be. And, um, 
you know, and so I do what I hope and what I've said to my mom is I think I got the best parts of both her and my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I'm interested in, you know, I, I, you know, I want to be generous because I think that we're all struggling with things and I'm not interested in trying to demonize black men I'm trying to figure out how to hold um, how to hold these truths and how to hold that pain but how to hold it in ways that feel transformative and, and I'm not asking any other woman to to, to be uh, so generous to the men in her lives I just know to the men in her life but I just know that for me that I had I have been haunted in my life by seeing my dad as a monster and so being able to understand him as something other than that beyond the kind of monstrous acts um, that I experienced from him has, you know, it's at least part of the journey. And if we're going to be really true to our politics, then, you know, systems of racism and, and capitalism and patriarchy, they create, they turn men into monsters. And that's mm-hmm. why we got to undo these systems. If we want the boys and men in our lives to have a different set of possibilities beyond being violent and trying to dominate women as a way to feel powerful and seen in the world uh, and as a way to feel valuable, valuable in the world, then that happens at the level of systemic change. But perhaps until we can get there, what we can have is the context for some personal reckoning with each other that is at the same time deeply loving. I found it interesting when you talk about your mom reading a lot of books, Jet, Ebony, Essence, and got to a point where she turned her life around and got to where she was a happy individual. Yeah. You know, I try to hold that even though I'm a little bit against self-help kind of stuff because I feel like it, as I said, you know, makes it makes women internalize the problems with themselves, and, and I'm less interested in that. One of the, the complications for me is that I did see my mama transform from being a woman who had been so terribly harmed by by the men that she, you know, that she dated in, in her early adulthood you know, she often talks about and would often say to me, you know, I attracted confused men because I was confused. And so then she would like read these books. And I just remember feeling in the, you know, as a teenager, like my mom was sort of in the process of transforming herself. And I think she did. And I, and she has found healthy partnership uh, in my stepdad for over a couple, you know, over two decades at this point. I mean, so in many ways, her story, you know, has a happily ever after to it. But for me, I don't, you know, I also think that the thing that I learned from my mama's story is that while she did the work to heal herself, that the real thing that also needs to happen is that we need to create a context where we don't have such violent men, that it can't just be on women to not attract violence, but it has to be on men to not be violent in the first place. And so I think that black women have the, have the self-help thing figured out. So they don't mm-hmm. need anybody else yelling at them about what it means to help themselves or what it means for us to help ourselves. But I think we have less figured out about what it means to challenge brothers to do better. And I challenge them because I'm an unapologetic feminist and feminism taught me that if we're going to change the world, then it means you've got to step toe-to-toe with brothers and talk to them about their investments in male dominance and violence. And so that's one of the things that I'm willing to do in this book uh, because somebody has to do it. Why was it important for you to relate the story of Sandra Bland and you on that day that, that she was stopped outside of Prairie View and intersectionality? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the uh, one of the core arguments of eloquent rage is that 
intersectionality has intimate consequences. And so I talk about how when Sandra Bland is making her journey down to Texas, the day she gets pulled over, um, is this terrible day for me where I'm on a train giving a talk at Harvard, giving the first talk at Harvard I'd ever been invited to give, but I'm like in the middle of having a terrible breakup with like this man that I had been dating who had just done me wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. And sisters will know what I mean when I say just done me wrong (laughs) in all kinds of ways. And so I'm like, you know, we're having a terrible sort of fight on the train all via text because, you know, this is the digital era. And Sandra Bland is sort of on her journey from Chicago to Texas. And I just, you know, I was struck when I realized that those dates coincided, that I have a very clear sense of what I was doing on that day Mm -hmm. um, and a very clear sense of her loss and what it means and that I understand what it is to get in your car and drive thousands of miles to your destiny. And what I don't understand is what it looks like to get that close and then to not make it because you become the victim of an act of state violence. And so it was my, you know, I'm trying to think about, well, what was she listening to in the car? Like, who was this black girl who, like so many of us, have packed up all our things and said, you know, my destiny is here and I'm going to go get it. And that's what we tell black girls. And then what happens when, for her, the state intervenes and totally devastates her life possibility? Um, and for me, I am on a train feeling absolutely heartbroken and yet I've got to go stand at Harvard and be my absolute best self. That on any given day, those are the kinds of things that black girls all over the world are facing. And so I always try to understand what is happening in my life as part of a larger political narrative instead of political struggles that black girls all over the world are dealing with. When was Beyonce and the album, I guess, Lemonade, important to this story? Beyonce helped helps me think about my feminism. I'm here for Beyonce the feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that her journey around feminism has been one of the most pivotal feminist stories among black women of our time. And so I want to have my say about her. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to Beyonce as part of Destiny's Child from the very first album because Beyonce and I are basically the same age. And so I feel like I have grown up alongside her and cheered for her career for two decades at this point. And I also believe in the importance of a feminism that you don't have to go to college or to get a Ph.D. to get. So I love that even though that hasn't been her journey, that she still found something useful and valuable in claiming feminism. And it made me really mad when very educated black feminists talked about how they didn't believe her and they thought it was a gimmick. And I just thought they were wrong. And I think that when black women do mean girl things to each other because we feel because of competitiveness and sort of useless infighting that, you know, we got to call it out. And so that was that was what I was trying to do. Why was it important for you to talk about Holly, your best friend, when you're uh, in that uh, special class and moving on in life? Every story that I tell in this book and the story of Holly included Mm -hmm. is about trying to think about all of the black girls who have their own version of this story and you know and what the story has been for them and so she and I are both taking the sort of you know academically advanced classes together but you know you fast forward 20 years and she has six children um and I have no children and there's a way that her story could be looked at as a failure 
And for me, I wanted to think about it in a more complicated way to say she has really made a great life for herself. She has a great career. Her children are doing well. Um, And I'm struggling to think about what it means that I've made, quote, unquote, all of the right choices, and yet, you know, I don't come home to children, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I come off the road doing these sort of, you know, fancy book talks. And, you know, so is that really a win? Maybe it's all a win, but I want to challenge the idea that black girls who shape their lives differently from the way that I've shaped mine have in some way failed or not done it right. Is your grandma still with us? Uh, She is not. She passed away uh, in 2008. Was it difficult for you to write about Christianity and abstinence? Uh, It was not. I have been writing about that for a number of years in the public and... You know, but it felt like it was time to to tell that story and to say to black women, we got to have a different theology. I'm a church girl. My stepdad's a preacher. I consider myself a preacher's kid. And, you know, I don't like any kind of theology that engages in the um, politics of of shame and blame. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so much of the kind of teaching that black women are sitting in churches listening to every Sunday is deeply problematic. Um, And we're sitting there and we're listening to that teaching because we feel like if we try to imagine a different way that we're going to as Church folks like to say, you know, God will remove God's head of hedge of protection from us, and you know, and all all these terrible things will befall us. And so, I try to chronicle in this book as a church girl and as a Christian that I feel like God invited me to rethink some of the things that I held to be core beliefs. And I think one of those things God invited me to rethink was around how I was approaching my intimate life. And that happened no less than a a confrontation by my grandmother, who was a church lady, but who sort of said to me, you know, baby, you need to get some. And so I tell that very provocative Mm -hmm. uh, story in this book, and I hope that moment ultimately helped me to get free and to imagine a different set of life possibilities for myself. And I hope that for black women who are really struggling and who know something is wrong with the theology they have, but who don't necessarily have the language for naming what is wrong, I hope that this will help them get free too. Well, I think it's more than a book for for black women. I think black men or men in general uh, need to read it. A couple more questions. I agree. (laughs) That's good. Uh, What do you want readers to come away with? I want readers to come away believing that we actually can change the world, that, you know, that if we are, you know, willing to, to sit with the contradictions and complexities that we all face that, you know, maybe we can have a clear idea about how to change things in our own little neck of the woods. I want folks to have a clear sense about what the the things that black girls struggle with, but I want even folks who are not black women to see that, you know, black women's stories have something to tell us about the American story. Black women's stories have something to tell us about black people's collective story. And far too often, when black women talk about ourselves, people think that we're only talking about ourselves and that our stories are not universal and that they can't apply to anybody but us. And that's, as you just said, is is untrue. And so I think that there's something in this book for everybody, for white girls, for people of color, for black men, for little girls. You know, there are so, you know, black women are multifaceted, and I, and I trust that even in being able to tell my own story alongside the stories of so many black women that I admire uh, and love and who have informed and inspired me, that I have created the context for other people to see the power in black women's experience of what it means to grow up in the American context. Why was it important for you to include the three women who started the Black Lives Matters movement? 
I will talk about those women anywhere and everywhere that I am. Um, they are incredibly important to uh, the black freedom struggle in the 21st century. Um, they deserve all the love. Um, I think they're political geniuses, and I'm thankful for their courage. And so anytime I can say their names, then I will. Final question. How has the book tour been thus far? Uh, the book tour is great. Lots of conversations all over the country, and I'm looking forward uh, to more and more conversations as people read this book. Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University and author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discover Her Superpower. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions after future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for production assistant Delia Jones and technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.